You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, Andrew and I are going to be talking about the concepts of appearance and essence in Marxist economic theory. Specifically, we're going to be talking about a paper that Andrew recently wrote responding to some critics uh, on these issues of essence and appearance in Marx's economic theory and in the temporal single system interpretation of that theory. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, Andrew and I will be talking about appearance and essence and Marx's economic theory. But first, as we do in every episode, we are going to take just a few moments to talk about some current events. We are recording this current events section on January 17th of 2023. We're going to be talking about a topic that was recently discussed in the New York Times by Michelle Goldberg. Her piece was called DeSantis Allies Plot the Hostile Takeover of a Liberal College. Uh, the piece is about New College, uh, which is a university in Florida, and the attempts by Governor Ron DeSantis to affect a complete ideological turnaround of the school by various means. Andrew, do you want to try to summarize what's going on there? What DeSantis has done is to stack uh, the board of trustees with his allies and people who want to execute this hostile takeover. He can do that because he's the governor and it's a public college. Uh, It's a small school, about 700 students, and it's got a reputation and in reality for being progressive, especially for Florida, DeSantis and his allies, they want to turn New College 180 degrees around uh, into another version of this right-wing school, Hillsdale in in Michigan, which is a Christian, I believe it's private, and they want to do this now in the the public system, basically to squeeze out progressive uh, ideas from the curriculum, squeeze out progressive students, uh, squeeze out progressive professors, of course. They have some some difficulty doing that because at New College, tenured professors uh, cannot be fired except for cause. We'll see how it goes. But one of the most interesting and alarming things is this board of trustees that uh, DeSantis is recruiting here. They're not just like people from Florida. They're not locals. The main one that's getting attention is Chris Rufo of anti-critical race theory fame, the guy who took the term critical race theory and bundled every racist grievance under the sun into opposition to critical race theory. He's been involved in a lot of uh, other things as well. So this fight that's going to be taking place at New College is just one of the opening salvos in Chris Rufo's war which is basically to gut public education by getting the public incensed about what's going on in the schools, blah, blah, blah. So then you're going to be able to gut public education. Uh, That's one big goal. And the other thing is he's part of the right wing that thinks that the, the culture has passed them by. They've lost the culture wars and that they got to turn everything around 
by indoctrinating. He's not talking about balance or anything like that. He's talking about promoting a right-wing nationalist agenda with nothing about uh, diversity, inclusivity, equity, nothing about gays, nothing about transgender people, etc. So Christopher Rufo, this right-wing activist who's branded critical race theory as the new Trojan horse to attack uh, the left on. He, this was re- a wildly successful issue for the Republicans a few years ago. It helped Governor Youngkin win the Virginia governor's race. It put the left on the defensive around issues of public schooling. His activism around this issue and other education issues are founded in an idea he has about why the right is, in his opinion, losing the culture war. It has to do with this idea that leftists gave up on class-based issues uh, in the 60s because they weren't getting any traction and instead decided to infiltrate and take over schools, universities, and indoctrinate children with ideas about diversity and uh, inclusion and gender and feminism. And because the left was able to do that unchecked in his theory, the right lost the culture wars of that era. Conversely, the solution to that, in Rufo's opinion, is to take back over schools and universities and turn them into Christian nationalist indoctrination centers, basically. You know, I've read some of his stuff. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a you know, conservative think tank. But I mean, his stuff is garbage. It's just frankly garbage. He strings together a couple of anecdotes, sweeping pronouncements, no sourcing, no documentation of anything. And it's just, you know, a narrative. What he's talking about did not happen. Okay. I mean, I, I, I was there. I know what happened. Basically, you had some disillusioned radicals of, of the new left of the 60s. You know, the revolution didn't come. They, they got rather disillusioned and they're, they're saying, what do I do now? Well, let me go into teaching public schools or universities or whatever. And they didn't see much space for them to do real politics. So they decided in the main to make their career and their politics wanted the same. They said, well, maybe we can do some good in the schools. But this was a gesture of defeat. It it wasn't like some new insidious strategy to take over everything through some counter-hegemonic Gramscian project, no matter what people said. I mean, it wasn't that. There might be other reasons that Christian nationalist ideas are, have not been the most uh, widespread or, or have, have not caught on in a lot of places and circles in America. It has nothing to do with a, a leftist takeover and indoctrination. Bingo. You hit the nail on the head, Brendan. That's the key thing. That's the big lie that they're telling everybody and they're telling themselves. Why are we defeated? Oh, it's because the enemy has all its power. Not Not that the majority of people in this country don't believe this stuff anymore. The country's becoming more secular. It's becoming more tolerant. And reality has has passed them by. Their stuff is not popular because society has changed. The way we actually live has changed. And they're on the losing side of that. And so they, they comfort themselves with, you know, conspiracy theories. But the fact of the matter is, you know, in this country, don't want to go back to the 1950s. In the main. There's a lot of people who do, but things are shifting against that. There's also an incredible amount of right-wing indoctrination already in place in public schools and colleges. 
prior to you know the critical race panic and new right wing attempts to take over universities. I mean, <laughs> school children have to pl- pledge to the flag every morning, and they're taught sanitized versions of U.S. history. And most people on the left had the experience of having to unlearn things they learned in grade school once they actually got to read like real American history in, in college and stuff. So the idea that schools are this pre- this indoctrination zone where people are being fed all this leftist ideology is just completely contrary to most people's experience of of school unless you're unless you some go to some private progressive alternative school that has the freedom to like design its own curriculum and and the the freedom to teach around a certain shared values or something like the the, the most public schools i mean you know we, we could go on to a whole critique of public schooling but it's they're not institutions that are designed to create a radical populace one of Rufo's big current kicks is against the diversity, you know, inclusivity and, and, and equity training and, and other things. But big corporations are have these programs. The motivation behind this is not to turn the workers and the company into left-wing activists, believe me. What it is is the, the companies have a diverse workforce and they don't want to have to deal with all kinds of strife internally. They want things to go smoothly so they can make big bucks. That's what's going on. And, and he, you know, he, he has just created and his allies have created and then they're, they're trying to push. This article by Catherine Joyce says, quotes him, saying, we need a new vocabulary of subversion. He's trying to subvert the educational system. And, and other institutions. We need a new vocabulary of subversion and a narrative that can direct the emotions and energy of the public against the right targets. So he's whipping up hate. That, that's what's going on here. It's an amalgam of a little bit of this, a lot of nothing, overblown claims, and, and just a totally false picture of what's been happening culturally in the country and why the right wing doesn't have the cultural staying power anymore. His, his strategy makes total sense given his goals and the way the right wing operates. You create these vague narratives that are based in grievances and are like cover for fascist politics. You create these wedge issues that are don't have to be based in reality at all. So you're completely free to just like, it's kind of like a 3D printer where you just kind of print whatever you want. You can just like create whatever wedge issue based on non-existent issues, whip people up about them with propaganda, and then use them to slowly take over institutions, whether it be local school boards, colleges, uh, what have you. It's not something you just directly fight against by countering lies with facts. That by itself doesn't seem to be even an effective strategy by itself because it's a type of politics that exists in just the space of propaganda and this kind of fascist uh, fear-mongering and getting people riled up and violent. So what what do you think, Andrew, needs to be done to counter this sort of thing? I don't know for sure, but uh, I think the recent midterm elections may provide a clue. Right. There was no red wave. In particular, the most MAGA maggots fared poorly in the elections. And why? Well, it's because a small but significant chunk uh, of the middle of the road public, independents and less extreme Republican voters said these fascist Trumpite candidates are too extreme. Mastriano in 
Pennsylvania, uh, Cary Lake, and so on. That was the, the unifying element. So extreme anti-abortion, their election subverters, or they want to subvert elections. This is too extreme. This is a bridge too far. We're not going to go that far. Now, there's a long, his, long, long history in this country of using universities, students, you know, as, as, as punching bags. Intellectual life has never been hugely popular in this country, right? It's an anti-intellectual culture. So, you know, especially when you're talking about public funding of higher education, it's hard to get the public on your side for something like this. But I think it might actually work in terms of combating this garbage with facts. It might actually help to expose the fact of what their real end goals are, how extreme it is that they're actually going after K through 12 public education. Uh, these are real extremists, and they're, they're not just coming after my school and my professors. They're coming after your kids as well. And if you don't have the money, your kids aren't going to have an education. So I, I actually think that if people are smart, they go after the facts as to what the goals of these people are, like Rufo. They go after the facts of he's making up a narrative, and this is a person who's uh, on the board of trustees, and he writes these garbage articles with, you know, really no facts in it, just a bunch of uh, hot air and overblown claims. I mean, I think like that they could like bait him into a debate at New College. Because he is, you know, a member of the board of trustees, blah, blah, blah. And if that gets uh, streamed or something, it, it, it might be a big deal. If, if, if he and they can be defeated at New College, that, I think, is going to slow a lot of things down. So I, I would say people got to fight, but they got to fight smart and understand what you were saying, that academia and intellectual life in general are really convenient punching bags. And these people are not out to convince a majority. They're, in, they're trying to whip up frenzy and hate among a base so they can go into local school boards, cause a ruckus, take them over. And you only need a few people to do that because most people don't attend their school board meetings, right? That, that's what this is, this is all about. It's a very nefarious strategy. It has extreme goals. And it, I think if people just keep pummeling the extremism, extremism, extremism might get somewhere. Well, we are going to have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation about a new piece Andrew has written in response to some criticism. We'll be talking about essence and appearance and other important issues in Marx. Today is the 12th of January, 2023, and we're going to be talking about a new paper that Andrew Kleiman has just written. It's called Value, Price, and Prattle, a response to Lopez, Byron, and historical materialism. So, Andrew, this is a paper that you've written in response to a an article that came out in Historical Materialism in May of last year by Jesse Lopez and Chris Byron. Why did you feel the need to respond to their paper? I don't know that I felt <laughs> to respond to it. I didn't even know about it. And then uh, somebody wrote to me an email message and said, they say things about what you wrote. They say things about the temporal single system interpretation of Marx's value theory that I've been associated with. Is what they're saying accurate or what? So I, I felt the responsibility to look at the paper, answer the questions. And what I found was, was atrocious. And in the course of 
of answering those questions, I had to read basically the whole paper and the overall argument and the way Marx's theory is represented. That was just as atrocious. And it was like, okay, well, what do I do now? Well, you know, so I, I, I wrote back to the person and said, yeah, what they say about the temporal single system interpretation of what I've said, it's atrocious, here's why. I sent an email message to the authors. I didn't get a response from them. Okay, but what am I to do? It's like, okay, I've wasted all this time with just prattle. So in order for it not to be a complete waste of time, I decided, okay, let me share my findings and my conclusions with, with other people by publishing this, but also because so much of it is erroneous, uh, misrepresentation, poor argumentation, and so forth. I'm In this paper, I'm calling for a retraction of the paper. So I'm calling on the editors of Historical Materialism and the publisher Brill to, to retract the paper. And clearly, I have to provide the grounds for that request. And uh, so the paper is that. It documents why it needs to be retracted. So... We, d we decided to discuss this in the podcast because in the course of responding to the Lopez and Byron paper, you make a, several observations or points or arguments that are interesting beyond just the paper in question, things that might be more interesting to our general audience, and people might get some insights from some of the things in the paper. Um, you know, I feel like there are different types of academic debate, right? There's like times when you, you hear a critique of something you've written and you think, you know, I don't agree with that, but they make some good points. In the process of responding to those points, we can like further the cause of truth seeking, right? And there are other times when you read a paper and it's really not well done. The arguments are not good and there's misrepresentation of, of points and it's kind of a mess. It, sometimes it can even be harder to respond just because there's the arguments all over the place. But if in that second instance, you're able to still make observations that are generally interesting, you know, to advance theoretical points that are of use outside of the particular back and forth, that's an even greater accomplishment. And I think you've done that with this paper. There were one or two places where I said, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about this issue in this way, especially around the notion of like what we'll get to later in the podcast, the issue of whether categories like price and value are real versus, I don't know, what's the word they use? They say, they say that prices and profits are observable phenomena. They're perceptible by the senses, unlike value and, and surplus value. They are not the first to say this. They're getting this all from Louis Althusser, and it, either from Althusser, Tony Negri got it, or vice versa. I mean, Tony Negri has going, been going on and on for decades about value being unmeasurable, beyond measure, beneath measure. Uh, I can't make heads or tails of anything he's trying to say. But all of these things go into issues of essence and appearance that have for a very long time been a big issue in trying to understand Marx's capital and frankly in trying to misunderstand Marx's capital and there's a certain kind of person who says what is this stuff about the transformation problem and all of this it's like well values are essences and prices are you know appearances and we, you know we know because we're profound philosophic people that essences are different from appearances so like what's the problem well yeah there's a there's a big problem because essences are different from appearances the problem is this if your essence contradicts the appearance and just plain flat out genuinely there's a contradiction between the two then your essence doesn't appear, 
and you've got no ground for calling it essence. In my book, Reclaiming Marx's Capital, I deal with Moshe Pastone, who come, came up with an argument like this that was considered, I guess, profound by some people. Because, wait, there's no problem here. Essence is different from appearances. You know, values the essence, prices the appearance. Well, I go, hey, price also differs from orange juice. And what you've told me about value is it's different from price. Well, you know, orange juice is different from price. That doesn't make orange juice an essence that underlies price. You have to show some connection between the two. And that's what's really at issue here is their denial of the need to show, Lopez and Byron, their denial of the need to show a connection between the two, their inability to show a connection, the fact that Marx does show a connection uh, and they reject the connection that, that he shows. So, yeah, th these are general issues that, that people have been discussing. I mean, somebody wrote to me and said, is the way that what you've said and the way that the uh, TSSI is represented, is that correct? Okay, that's what my correspondent was concerned with. But, yeah, there are bigger issues that are of wider interest and have been of wider interest. When I read the, the paper, I said, oh, God, there's a lot more atrocious to this paper than that stuff. And so the whole kit and caboodle is... Well, to call it problematic is an understatement. It, it needs to be retracted, and I had to provide the documentation of, of, of why. And so I go into all, the, the whole kit and caboodle. You spent you spend a decent amount of time looking at textual evidence that supports your interpretation of Marx, and even pointing out that sometimes the quotations of Marx that they are using to support their arguments in their paper directly contradict what they claim that Marx is saying. So it, it does come across from reading your your critique of their paper. It does come across that it's kind of it's a hot mess. Their paper. Um, were you surprised that it was published at all by historical materialism? No, uh, I have previous experience with that, that journal. The people who are the movers and shakers, the whole milieu. It, it doesn't surprise me in the least. I say the underlying problem is that searching for and getting the truth is not a central commitment of the journal in question or the milieu of which it is part. This is not an isolated thing, a bad paper that snuck through. Uh, it's bad paper in a bad journal. Bad, I'm, I'm talking about not just not high quality, I'm talking about basically it's not a scholarly journal in, in, in the real sense, so it's, it's, it's a misrepresentation. I think the whole thing is, you know, a misrepresentation. But you said that, like, the way they quote Marx and, and, and stuff, and they just at, at times misrepresent blatantly. I just wanted to give people one example that is really easy to grasp. So it doesn't just come off like a conclusion, but something that uh, is, is kind of obvious. They say... All Marx claims, uh, in the first section of Chapter 3 of Volume 1 of Capital and Money, all Marx claims in that section is that, quote, they're quoting Marx, money as a measure of value is the necessary form of appearance of the measure of value which is imminent in commodities, namely labor time, close quote. Yet he never states that labor time is also a measure. You know, it's hard for people sometimes to process quotes when they're read out loud on a podcast, but Marx refers to labor time as the imminent measure of value. And after they close the quote, they immediately say, Marx never claimed that labor time was a measure of value. Yeah, exactly. It, let, let, me, let me truncate the quote so you get it. Money as a measure of value is a form of appearance of the measure of value, imminent commodities, namely labor time. 
if labor time is the measure of value imminent in commodities, okay, it's a measure of value. So Marx did state that labor time is a measure of value right there. In the quote they used. In the quote they used, right, and it's right there in the sentence right before, yet Marx never states that labor time is also a measure. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing that that could be published in a journal and that the journal could expect their readers to not notice that and for people to still respect the standards of the journal when that's those sort of obvious mistakes are appearing in, the, in their pages. You know, tens of millions of people evidently swear by the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. And that is a mark of loyalty and, and being part of the team. And it's not really a matter of whether one believes it or not. It's a matter of whether one is willing to go there and sticks by it. Okay, so I, I, I don't think that anybody really says, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to pull a fast one. And maybe people won't see that we're denying what we, we just quoted as Marx affirming. I, mean, I, I don't think that, that anybody thinks that they, they can pull a fast one here. I think it's, it's, a, it's a different issue of, of loyalty and being, you know, part of the left or whatever it might be. One of the main arguments of Lopez and Byron's paper is that the so-called transformation problem can't be solved mathematically. So that all mathematical solutions, whether they're the temporal single system interpretation or other uh, attempts to solve it mathematically, are fundamentally flawed because they misunderstand something essential about Marx's method. Most people think of the transformation problem as a, as a mathematical issue. So what, are, what is this claim of theirs all about? Okay, first of all, the thing we got to get clear on is that they're using the term transformation problem in a somewhat unusual way. When Marxist critics say that there is a transformation problem, what they're saying is there's something problematic. In particular, there's something internally inconsistent with Marx's account of what Marx called the transformation of commodities values into prices of production. He talked about this in chapter 9 of volume 3 uh, of Capital. So Marx faced uh, an issue. He set out to resolve it in the chapter 9, and he did so by talking about the transformation of values into prices of production. That's the transformation part of this transformation problem. So most people mean by transformation problem this claim that there's internal inconsistency in the way Marx resolved this problem. Okay? That's not what Lopez and Byron mean. What they mean is the problem that Marx set out to resolve in that chapter, which is the discrepancy between a commodity's price and its value, and accordingly the discrepancy between the profit associated with that commodity and the surplus value involved in its production, the price doesn't equal the value, the profit doesn't equal the surplus value. That discrepancy is the problem that Marx set out to address. So when Lopez and Byron talk about transformation problem, they mean this problem that Marx set out to resolve. And so what they're saying is the problem that Marx set out to resolve, that price of commodity is unequal to its value, the profit associated with that, is unequal to the surplus value, that discrepancy cannot be solved mathematically. That's what they're saying. Okay, so there's an apparent contradiction because this Marxist theory says the exclusive 
determinant of the magnitude of value of a commodity is the amount of labor needed for its production. So accordingly, it should be that the amount of profit, it would look like the amount of profit that a business would get would have to do with the amount of labor that it exploits, the number of workers that it employs. Okay, but you know, on the surface of society, that's not the way things look. The amounts of profit that businesses get is really independent of how many workers they employ. You know, in the chemical industry, very so-called capital intensive, you don't have a lot of uh, workers, you got a lot of, you know, heavy-duty machinery and and, and very sophisticated uh, other stuff. But that, on account of that, the, the chemical industry doesn't get less profit than, let's say, a bakery. You know, bakery was Marx's own example. Bakery employs a lot of workers, and not really any kind of sophisticated machinery, you know, an oven and a mixer and, 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 and so forth. So the relative number of workers involved in the production process actually has nothing to do with the relative amounts of profit or, or surplus value that firms get. So it looks like on the surface of society that Marx's theory just contradicts the facts. So Marx said, okay, look, I got to, you know, there's a problem here and I got to resolve it. And what Lopez and Byron are saying is you can't resolve this problem mathematically. Can we refer to it as the problem of average profits? Yeah. Just as a shorthand? I mean, that's not a complete description, but yeah. I mean, I like to just call it the apparent contradiction. The apparent contradiction. Okay. Yeah, the apparent contradiction between Marx's theory and the, the real world facts. Okay, so they have an issue with the idea that this apparent contradiction can be resolved mathematically. But I'm surprised that they would claim that it's contrary to Marx's own intentions that you can't resolve it mathematically since, as you just mentioned, there's a whole chapter in Volume 3 of Capital where he's very clearly mathematically trying to resolve this apparent contradiction. And it's not just one chapter. It's like all of the preceding chapters are building up the theoretical framework of what is profit, what is cost price. He's sort of laying the groundwork to then finally explain prices of production and average profits in a way that shows how the underlying phenomena of value can arrive at this apparent phenomena of average prices and prices of production. How do they defend this claim that, that, it, that it is counter to Marx's intentions to mathematically work this out? Oh. I don't know that they actually even address the issue of his intentions, strictly speaking. What they do is give an argument as to why it can't be solved mathematically, and they give an interpretation of sorts of what he did, and it is not a mathematical solution according to their interpretation. And that's actually because it isn't a solution of anything at all, according to their interpretation. They start with an apparent contradiction, and they end up with the same apparent contradiction. But they deny that he solved it mathematically, just like they deny that he said labor time is a measure of value. Right, right after they quote him saying, hey, labor time is a measure of value. So, you know, it's, it's, it's gaslighting. But uh, They're sort of avoiding having to say whether or not Marx was trying to solve this problem mathematically. Yeah, well, they do say it's contrary to his theory and scientific method and, and all kinds of things, but you don't have to actually... I mean, it's really difficult when somebody writes anything to say, what is it that they intended? Well, if you have like nine chapters of a book in which someone is 
going through tables and, and math equations saying, I'm trying to solve this problem. Here's the math. I feel like you can you can assume that that is their intention. Right. I'm trying to solve the problem. Here's the math. Therefore, the person intended to solve it mathematically. Well, yeah, that's a really good interpretation in my view, but that's an inference from the, the text. You know what people do with Marx, and unless Marx says, I intend to solve this mathematically, they won't say that he intended to solve it mathematically. And even if he says it, they'll say he, he, you know, he, he didn't say it. So I would, I would rather just stick with, did he say it was a mathematical solution? Yes, he did. And in the epigraph to the whole paper, I quote, and this is from the, the, towards the end of the next chapter, chapter 10 of volume 3, he says, blah, 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 blah. He says, we thus have a mathematically exact demonstration, basically of how the entirety of the capitalist class exploits the entirety of the working class, because they all share the surplus value for capitals of equal size, they divvy it up as equal amounts of profit. So it's, it's clearly mathematical. We know that Marx clearly recognized that it was mathematical. That's that's good enough. We don't have to prove what was in his head, you know. <laughs> okay. So what is their argument as to why this problem can't be solved mathematically? They don't ever put it succinctly in one place in their paper, but by piecing things together and just like figuring out the logic, I was able to boil it down into five steps, I think. You know, I'm pretty sure that if, if I don't have him like exactly with every T crossed and every I dotted, I, I think what I've got here in my article is, is pretty close. First of all, they say uh, commodities values and surplus values are essences or the underlying reality. Uh, prices and profits are appearances. That's number one. Second, what number one means, according to them, is that values and surplus values are not observable or otherwise perceptible by the senses, unlike prices and profits, which you know are observable, are objects of sense. Now, what, what does that imply? Because the, the values and surplus values are not perceptible by the senses, not observable, they can't be measured directly. So you could measure their effects in the world, but you can't measure them. But since prices and profits are supposedly observable, perceptible by the senses, they can be measured directly. And therefore, number four, the two things are incommensurable. There's no common measure between value and price or surplus value and profit. They're not things of the same kind. Uh, Lopez and Byron say explicitly, Values are one kind of thing, and prices are a different kind of thing. And you can't quantitatively compare things of different kinds, right? A, a joule of, of, of heat and, and the size of an elephant, you can't compare them, okay? They're, they're different kinds of things. So they, they end up from this alleged difference in observability, they wind up with you can't quantitatively compare value and price, surplus value and profit, and therefore, there is no mathematical solution to the contradiction between the amount of profit and the amount of surplus value and the uh, price and the value. And in fact, even to talk about amounts of value and surplus value is, uh, I don't know what it is for them. It's, these things really can't be quantified in, in, in their view. So let's get to the, your response to their argument. 
this is where I think things get interesting. So just to repeat, they start, or in your summary of how their argument works, um, they start saying that commodities values and surplus value are essences or the underlying reality, while prices and profits are appearances. They're the, the world of phenomena. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I, I think that's correct. And they say it was Marx's view. And I think they're correct to say that it was Marx's view. So I don't have any problems with that. I just have problems with everything else. Yeah, so let's look at the second. The next step in their argument would be that values and surplus values are not observable or otherwise perceptible by the senses, while prices and profits are perceptible entities. Now, when I, when I was reading the paper and not thinking you know, about it for a long time, my, my first thought was, oh, well, Andrew's going to disagree, and he's going to say that Labor time is observable and therefore value is observable, just like price and profits are perceptible. But that's not the direction you took at all. No, you didn't see it coming. They don't see it coming. Um, and I don't know why, but yeah, labor time's kind of observable. Be- before you even get to that, they understand this whole thing about observable, not observable perceptible by the senses, not perceptible by the senses, they understand that as an implication or a more specific way of stating the issue of essence versus appearance. So Marx says value and surplus value are essences, prices and profits appearances. Therefore, according to Lopez and Byron, what that means is essence not perceptible by the senses, appearance is perceptible by the senses. No, it does not mean that. That is the issue, first of all. It doesn't mean that, and when Marx said that the one set of stuff is essence and the other is appearance, that's not what he meant. He was not talking about observability or sensory perception. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about a few things, but it's right there on the first page of Volume 3 of Capital. He said that these concrete forms, prices and profits and average profits, these appear on the surface of society in various ways, but among them is in the consciousness of the agents of production. Okay, They don't appear to the senses of the agents of production. They appear in the consciousness of the agents of production. They are mental constructs. They are theoretical constructs. They are the theories of everyday life. So it's just wrong. We can get to this, I guess we will, but, but it's just wrong to say that things like prices and profits are observable entities, unlike values and, and, and surplus values. They're, they're, they're not perceptible by the senses either. Okay, but once you recognize that prices and profits are no more observable entities, in, in, you know, theoretically speaking, what, what, what is meant in theory by price and profit? They're not observable entities. Once you say that they're like surplus value and, and, and value in this way, the whole rest of what Lopez and, and, and Byron are saying just crashes because you, you therefore no longer have the idea that the one can be measured directly, the other can't be measured directly, neither of them can be measured, quote, directly. And therefore, the problem of incommensurability, that they lack a common measure, well, you haven't shown that. And therefore, you haven't shown anything about the impossibility of solving the alleged contradiction mathematically. So that their whole argument falls apart 
because of this error in trying to move from essence and appearance on the one hand to observable, not observable on the other hand. You, you say a little more in the paper to help people understand the, uh, your argument that profit and prices are not observable phenomena, observable to the senses. Because a lot of people would maybe at first be surprised by that. Like you go to the store, you see the price tag for a commodity, right? Or you open a spreadsheet in your business and you see a profit. You know, you see the line graph and you see if you're in the red or the black and you are observing the profit with your eyeballs. So you have a response to that sort of everyday understanding or intuition that we are we think we're observing prices and profits. Yeah, I mean, I have a I have a problem with empiricism in general. What we actually perceive, we perceive upside down. Okay, <laughs> so uh, that's everything we perceive through the site. Okay, everything we you know we see, we see upside down. So you know, think about that. But let's go back to chapter nine of volume three of Capital. Marx isn't just talking about prices in general and profits in general. Okay, he's talking about prices of production and not just profits, but what he calls average profits. And these are not your regular everyday prices and, and, and profits. The price of production is, is a theoretical construct. You know, look, people don't hear about it in everyday life, and there's a reason they don't. Uh, you can call it by various names. Marx called it price of production. But the point is it's a hypothetical magnitude. It's not the actual price of any commodity. What it is, is it's the hypothetical price that the commodity would have if the firms that produced the commodity were getting an economy-wide average rate of profit. It's the price that it would have if they were getting the economy-wide average rate of profit. So it's hypothetical. It does not, you know, quote, exist in, in, in reality. And accordingly, what Marx called the average profit, which is... The, the profit he was speaking about in chapter nine, that is the profit that the businesses would be getting if they were getting the average rate of profit. So again, that's hypothetical. That's what they would get if they were getting the average rate of profit. Now, in reality, rates of profit between different branches of the economy, between different businesses in a branch, they differ. They don't all get the same rate of profit. They don't all get the same average. They don't, therefore, all get the average rate of profit. So actual prices and actual profits differ from these hypothetical magnitudes, either always or, or, you know, almost always. Okay, so first of all, Lopez and Byron are dealing with prices of production and average profits, and there is no way, shape, form in which you can you just cannot say these things are perceptible by the senses, observable or whatever. No, it's completely ludicrous. But I have a further argument. Even your everyday prices are not observable by the senses. They're not, they're not perceptible in any way. I say, okay, look, I don't, I don't want to quibble. You, you, you see a price tag. You're not seeing the price of the commodity, though. What you're seeing is the hope for price that the seller wants to get. They might actually have to sell it at a different price. They might actually not be able to get anybody to buy it at that price at all. Okay, so the, the price tag, that, that's neither here nor there. But let's say you, okay, let's take a wheat. You observe a bushel of wheat being exchanged for a certain amount of money. 
if you want to say that you're that amount of money that you're observing that is the price of the wheat and you're observing the price of wheat okay fine that, that, I, I don't have any huge problem saying that you've observed that price but here's the problem that's not what economists mean it's not what economists before Marx meant it's not what economists since Marx have meant by the price of wheat when you talk about the price of wheat, you're not talking about this particular price of this particular bushel of wheat in this particular place at that specific moment of time. You're, you're talking about something else. You're talking about an abstraction. And the abstraction is that all units of the same good have the same price. That is not present in reality, at least in many cases, if not most cases. And then there's an additional problem, like what do you, when you talk about the commodity, like what what is it? Like you know, I give the example of women's bar soap. Show me women's bar soap. You can't. You can show me Dove moisturizing bar for blah 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 blah, and it's different from the Cerave. Blah 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 blah. You got brand differences. Some of them are physical. Some of them are image related. Brand image. Different units of the so-called same commodity. They're not the same. And th these things sell at different prices. So to talk about the price of commodities, as economists always have and still do, you're abstracting from all of that. And what you are doing is theorizing that there is some process. You're imagining that it's been completed that irons out the differences in price among the units of the same commodity. This is known as the law of one price. And it, it presupposes that you have arbitrage, whereby you can profit by buying cheap and selling dear, buy one place cheap, sell dear in another place, and the arbitrage narrows the differentials between price in different places, eventually eliminating all the differences that aren't just due to transportation costs and getting the thing from one place to the other, or the cost of transacting the transactions cost involved in that and you know supposedly given enough time the remaining differences get eliminated and what is the price of the commodity it's that price that would exist again hypothetical at the end of this putative process of arbitrage okay so when when economists talk about price in a theoretical sense that's what they are referring to and it's what they have to refer to i mean you can't do any kind of economics, even like a simple supply and demand graph, without talking about the price of a commodity. It's just not even possible. And that's what economists mean in that context by the price. Try to do supply and demand analysis where every different kind of women's bar soap has a different price. And uh, if you go down to Chinatown, it's got one price. And on the Upper West Side of New York, it's got a different price. I mean, you know, give me a break. You can't. You can't do that. You know, you're no longer talking about a market for soap or whatever it might be. It, it becomes crazy. So you 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 have to abstract, and economists do abstract, and that is what we mean when we talk about the price and the associated profit. We're talking about products of the mind, theoretical constructs. We're not talking about things observable in the world at all. 
I, I think that's really interesting. And this is the kind of stuff that you bring out in this paper, which could easily have just been like a less generally interesting response to a specific poorly written paper. You, you bring up some interesting things that I think are, are worth talking about. Yeah. So when, when you understand what's going on here and that in everyday life, we employ these concepts, price, profit, etc., etc. What you realize is that, you know, your capitalists and your people, consumers, and everybody has theory. They employ theoretical constructs. People like to believe that the way they think is just the way things are. So that, like, I have this concept of price, but they don't want to say I have a concept of price. I see the price. That's the way people like to think, because when you put it that way, it removes your theory from the realm of theory and turns it just into a brute reality. And it can therefore no longer be called in question. It's just the way things are. It's like uh, Samuel Johnson kicking uh, the stone in the famous uh, retort to Bishop Barclay. People like that. They, they don't like to think that they are employing theory and that somebody has a different theory, and that, well, there's a problem. Whose theory is right? What is your support for your theory? People don't like that. But it's, it, I think it's hugely important to understand that the way people talk, the way people think, what seems to work in the world quite well, it, it's all mental constructs, at least in cases like these. It's, it's not physical stuff or sensory impressions from physical stuff that's going on. None of this stuff is physical. Prices aren't physical. <laughs> you know, profits aren't physical, just like values and surplus values. So the whole issue of essence and appearance here is really between two ways of thinking, two sets of theoretical understandings of the world. There's the, the one that is helpful to the capitalists, that seems, you know, useful in everyday life, doesn't threaten bourgeois rule, and then there's there's Marxists. But that's what is going on. That's what's being compared are two sets of theoretical constructs in, in every case. And the adequacy, of course, of what people take for granted is just being the way things are. That That's what's really at issue, and that's what's really at issue all throughout Volume 3 of Capital. It's not comparing some abstract theory to physical reality. No, 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 no. And actually, Althusser understood this much in that same book, horrible book, but the same book that, that Lopez and Byron uh, quote from Reading Capital. Althusser actually did say, look, everything in volume three is remains theoretical. It's, they don't pick up on that part, Lopez and Byron, but at least Althusser understood that much. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are 
faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. The final section of your article responds to claims that Lopez and Byron make about things you've written and about the TSSI, the temporal single system interpretation of the quantitative dimension of Marx's value theory. In short, what are their arguments here and, and what are your problems with them? Yeah, well, what, what don't they get wrong? There's a lot of different things involved. That section of the paper goes on, you know, my article goes on a long time. I, I address all of their claims, but there are two central things going on. One, they completely misunderstand the term single system and, you know, accordingly single system interpretation and so forth. They think it has to do with measuring value price, whatever, in terms of money versus measuring it in terms of labor, labor time. It has nothing to do with that. When we talk about a single system versus a dual system, we're talking about the determination of the magnitude, the quantitative determination, not the units of measurement. Okay, so just to make this clear, the amount of surplus value that a business pumps out of its workers, that's the surplus value produced. And then there's a different amount of profit the business receives. So we're talking about the difference between the amount of extra produced versus the amount of extra received. Two different quantitative amounts. 
And these are two different quantitative amounts, whether you're measuring them in terms of money, this amount of profit, this amount of surplus value, money, money, or different amounts of labor time or equivalents of labor time. And the same thing for, for price and value. So there are two separate issues. One is the units in which this stuff gets measured. The other is the quantitative discrepancies, even when measured in the same units, between value and price and surplus value and profit. And so the term single system and single system interpretation have to do about there being one system of determination in which the quantitative amounts of value and price and surplus value and profit all get determined together in contrast to the dual system interpretations where the quantitative determination of price and profit is in one system, has nothing to do with values, and there's a different system of determination of the quantitative magnitudes of value and surplus value that has nothing to do with prices and profits. So that's the difference. They don't understand it. They confuse the issue of the units of measurement again and again with the issue of the quantitative discrepancies and the determination of the quantitative magnitudes. That's one of the main things that they get wrong and that there, there's a number of ways in, in which this manifests itself. For instance, just to take the simplest one, they basically claim that I fabricated the idea that there are two different uh, rates of profit in Marx's work. The so-called value rate of profit, which is surplus value divided by the invested capital, and the so-called price rate of profit, which is the profit uh, divided by the invested capital. So surplus value divided by capital versus profit divided by capital, two different rates of profit. They say basically that, that I made this up, and that, that's like totally weird because a lot of their paper is looking at the second and third tables in chapter nine of volume three of Marx's Capital, and it's one and the same economy in the second and third tables. But in the second table, there's one set of rates of profit, surplus value divided by capital, and in the third table, there's a different set of rates of profit, profit, average profit divided by capital. So the two rates of profit were right in front of them. Go figure. Uh, the other main issue that they get wrong, and that again manifests itself in different ways, is they claim that the so-called melt or monetary expression of labor time has no basis in Marx. He did not employ it. Myself, other proponents of the TSSI and people who are you know, even different from that, we're all wrong. There, there is no concept of the, the melt in Marx's work. Now, Marx never used the expression monetary uh, expression of labor time. He, he didn't have the term. But the issue is, what is the melt? It's a conversion factor between quantities of labor time and quantities of money. You can convert six hours of labor into a certain amount of money. You can take a certain amount of money and convert it into an amount of labor time. How? By means of the melt. Lopez and Byron say, no, Marx never, never, never did this. I cited in, in my book, Reclaiming Marx's Capital, uh, chapter seven of volume one of Capital, where Marx uh, says, okay, here's where the surplus value comes from. They say, quote, Lopez and Byron say, the chapter has absolutely nothing to do with employing some conversion factor. And they also say, 
We believe that Belt has no uh, basis in Marx's work, despite claims to the contrary. This is a really big issue because, as I go on at some length in, in my article, if you want to say that labor creates value and surplus labor creates surplus value, and this value appears uh, on the surface of society and surplus labor appears as surplus value in the form of profit on the surface of society, you have to say, as Marx does say, that a certain amount of labor creates a certain amount of value in terms of money. Six hours of labor creates three shillings of value. You have to say this. So what's at issue is, is not some abstruse mathematical thing. It's when we're talking about a melt, we're saying, does labor create value? And if so, how much value does a certain amount, hour, or whatever of labor create? And, you know, it's just very easy to show that Marx says this all over uh, chapter 7 of volume 1, where he reveals the secret of profit-making. This is his solution to where the profit or the surplus value comes from. It's all over that chapter. Byron and Lopez say, "How come, if this is like a big deal for Marx, how come there's only like this one citation and it's inaccurate? Well, it's not inaccurate. And I go, there's only one because like, this is so, so obvious. I didn't need to belabor the obvious, or so I thought. Well, maybe I do have to belabor the obvious. So I, I, I pull out one more example, and I show in Volume 3 of Capital, when Marx talks about the, the falling rate of profit, it's right there from the very beginning. The conversion of a certain amount of work that workers do into a certain amount of uh, profit that the, that the capitalists receive. You point out that most of the important things that Marx is trying to do in capital um, are like not achievable without a monetary expression of labor time. Yeah. You can't prove the results. You can't reveal the secret of profit making. You can't derive the law of the tendential fall on the rate of profit. I mean, there's some things that Marx is doing that are not mathematical. And there's some things he's doing even that are mathematical that have nothing to do with labor creating value. But anytime Marx is talking about labor creating value, the, the melt is inextricable from that. Yeah, I'm, I I don't understand why some people seem to have a problem with, seems like a very obvious shorthand of describing a process that Marx is clearly using to to do very basic mathematical things in capital. Well, there, there are the proponents of commodity money, which is a whole issue. We could talk about that, but maybe, I mean, it's not particularly relevant here. But, you know, for, for, for Lopez and Byron, the whole thing is really a threat to what they're saying because the melt connects labor time and money. It connects something that is supposedly not observable <laughs> like labor time, to something supposedly observable like money. But the idea that money is observable is just completely nuts. If, if you think that you can see money, you know, I just, like I say in the article, if, if, to anybody who thinks that they see money, I only have four words for you. Show me the money. You can't show me money. It's a theoretical construct. You can show me clusters of pixels on a screen. You can show me pieces of colored paper. You can show me round pieces of metal. You're not showing me money. What money is that's media in society is socially constructed. It's theoretical. It's something you understand and learn. It's not something you just immediately 
see or touch or perceive with your senses. Not an atom of matter enters into it the way, the way that I think that's the expression that Marx used. If you had like somebody from um, a primitive society, so-called primitive, you know, pre-monetary society, they don't have any problem with their sensory apparatus. And they would say, yeah, I, I see the images. I see the colored paper. And uh, I, I see the, the round pieces of metal. They wouldn't see money. And they wouldn't be wrong to not see money. They would just be aware, which we aren't, that we that they weren't seeing money. <laughs> okay, again, it's a it's a, it's a problem of people not recognizing and not really wanting to recognize that they go throughout their lives employing theoretical categories. I mean, really theoretical theoretical categories, and that their theories are theories just like everybody else's theories. And to dismiss things as just theory, it, it doesn't cut it. People want to think that they are in immediate contact with reality, that the mind is not active. It's just reflecting. And, and that's an empiricist error. And, you know, as, as anti-empiricist as, as, as Lopez and Byron are or think they are, they're caught up in that kind of really crude empiricism. They're playing to it at least. They, they don't know that they're doing that, perhaps, but this whole stuff about price and profit being observable is part and parcel of, of a really crude empiricism. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 